While healthcare is a universal concern that transcends boundaries, diversity within healthcare workforces don't reflect the diverse patient populations they serve. And that can lead to quality problems in the care that we deliver. Over these past months, we've been interviewing healthcare leaders who are trying to stand up programs to enhance equity and healthcare delivery. But it's also important to think about who is involved in the development and delivery of healthcare advances. From hospitals to clinics, research institutions to medical schools, the need for a diverse science and healthcare workforce has never been more critical. So how do we grow that science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and here I'm going to add one more M, medical workforce, the STEM workforce? That is a critical question, and the solution will likely require huge collective action at government and institution levels to make the kind of impact that needs to be achieved. We're going to need to support programs that develop science, efficacy, motivation, identity, just so big. But sometimes I think we can all feel like a challenge this big is too big for us individually to do anything meaningful. There's another complementary way to approach this challenge, and that is individual action. We can simply ask, what can we or what can I do today to help be part of the solution? So today, instead of talking about big enterprise-oriented projects, we're going to talk with some colleagues who've helped organize an effort right here in our community. The program, which they designed, matches faculty members with local high school sophomores from backgrounds that are underrepresented in medicine for a longitudinal mentoring experience that stretches until the student's graduation. They call the new effort Science-Bound Scholars. Now, whether you're a healthcare professional, a student aspiring to enter the field, or simply passionate about the future of healthcare, Stay tuned for what I think will be a thought-provoking discussion that I'm sure will inspire change. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality experience and affordability trends and solutions. This podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps towards understanding and improving quality challenges in your organization. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Tim Morgenthaler, a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and the vice chair for quality. Co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Welcome, everyone. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation and Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. You know, Dr. Morgenthaler, when I learned more about this program, I didn't have any idea about it prior to our conversation. I was really inspired, and I think your point about what can one person do is a common question. People are like, this is too big of a problem. Yeah. I don't know what I can do. And so I'm really excited to hear more about this today. Well, that, that's what I loved. And that's why I wanted to invite these colleagues because I was inspired by their action. And I'm sure that some of our listeners will be too. So today we're being joined by Dr. Heather Kahikas and Dr. Aaron DiMartino. Dr. DiMartino, tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your work here at Mayo Clinic? Uh, how did you get here? Just introduce yourself to us. Sure. Well, I am a native of Maine, so I am a transplant to the Midwest. I did some of my training in New England at Dartmouth, and then the remainder of my training in pulmonary and critical care medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, where I've stayed on as faculty. And I am the division diversity leader for the pulmonary division, and I also work as an ethicist. Wow. Okay. Yes. And Dr. Hector Cahigas, tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you. Good morning, all. I am also a transplant, but I'm transplant from farther away. Actually, I graduated from Mexico, University of Baja California, and then I came and completed my training in internal medicine and pulmonary care in Chicago. My fellowship is from Northwestern University, and then I joined about five years ago 
the division of pulmonary and critical care, as well as the effort of diversity and inclusion under Dr. De Martina's lead. So it has been a tremendous experience all this time. So this is a, a small background. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Now, tell us a bit about the Science Bound Scholars Program. I mean, what's the main purpose of this program? So the main purpose of the program is to help integrate our faculty better into the community and help students who otherwise might not have opportunities to speak one-on-one with a physician, maybe outside of the physician-patient relationship when they're going to their pediatrician or their family doctor, to understand a little bit more about careers in the health sciences, not necessarily specifically medicine, but anywhere within the health sciences, and understand steps that they can take to be more competitive in the various application stages and the processes that are involved in getting from sophomore in high school to diploma holding doctorate degree or master's degree in a health science. How did you come up with that idea? Actually, this is not as original as you'd think. When I was at Northwestern University under the direction of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of Dr. Clyde Yancey, who is a national figure when it comes to diversity and inclusion, they developed a program similar to this one, and it was called Science Scholars. And they were actually a high school in the west side of Chicago who actually were selected some of these students to come and join us similar format to what we have now. And actually I was able to participate and I was able actually to see tremendous fruits of this effort and significant results that I then conferred in our meetings in diversity and inclusion. And Dr. DeMartino was extremely receptive actually to have and help develop some of this at Mayo Clinic as well. One thing that was interesting was that we were in this phase, we had just formed a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee within our division. That was a new thing. We had always had a a diversity leader, but we hadn't had a committee. And the committee was looking around for opportunities. This was in 2020, 2021, to reach into the community. And yet there were very limited opportunities for us to gather as a division and be together in the same physical space, never mind to go out into a new space and forge new relationships. And so because of the being in the middle of COVID. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the scale of this actually was perfect for the times, which was that we were looking for kind of small scale opportunities for involvement with hopefully huge payoffs for the both the mentors and more importantly, the mentees. So that was part of the, the timing of this idea was really perfect. So you have this committee that you're utilizing and you have this great idea So how did you take those and pull them together and get this moving forward then? So that's an interesting story. We heard about a call for proposals for Mayo Clinic's eradicating racism grants, which went out in, I think, late 2020 or 2021. So we were looking for kind of small seed funding to help launch this program. And we actually have very small expenses in terms of just helping to offset the cost of transportation for our students and their faculty advisor back and forth from the high school. 
and paying for lunches, good lunches that everybody, all the high school students are excited about. So relatively small expenses. And so we applied for that grant. And part of the problem we encountered in applying for the grant was that we really weren't able to cite much in terms of pre-existing literature about how to measure the quality of the intervention and the, the effectiveness of the intervention. There just wasn't a lot out there about mentoring programs or outreach community outreach programs to be able to measure and report the good that we were doing because we wanted to do this not just within our community and our division, but we wanted to create this program in a way that it was scalable and it could be easily modified to other practice settings, not just within our institution, but if somebody read an article about it, they could really kind of have a how-to guide so they could stand up a program like that in their own community. Well, that brings up an interesting question. So tell us about the how-to. How did you go about making this happen? Well, one of the first things we did once we received the notification of funding was that we reached out to the high school that we had a prior personal connection to, because Hector had two students now, I think, who have graduated from that high school. So had the ability to reach out to the principal and find an ally within the walls of the high school to help us you know, refine our plan and champion this cause. It didn't take a lot of convincing. I think they were pretty excited to be contacted. And we were paired with the person who advises students around all sorts of different types of careers, including careers that don't involve a four-year degree. And he has been fantastic in terms of bringing a lot of energy and enthusiasm and ideas for making this a streamlined and easy a process of getting the students and faculty together as possible. So I guess that that was the very first step was to identify a colleague from the high school who could help us with all the logistics and the recruitment of our students. So after you have your ally and you've got uh, some funding to help with buses and uh, meals, what were the next steps after that? It was uh, very, very interesting. I just need to add to Dr. DeMartinez's uh, answer that the response from the Rochester Public Schools as well from our division was amazing. So either, either there was this social hunger to try to help this situation or to understand what is happening around even the quick responses that we received from our division was actually way more than what we expected in regards of mentors as well with the, within the public school. So it made our life much easier to actually have all this to occur. So we were able to obtain the grant and to actually start the process with the help again from the, from the school. And we paired a sophomore. We started with a small group of five because the idea was, like she mentioned, to start on a small scale so we actually could be able to control the environment, we, we could be able to control the responses, and also to obtain feedback to see what the students, the students were saying about us, because that's very important. Like Dr. DeMartino mentioned, there was really no written background on how to do this and to create a playbook and to create a guide for next divisions or other institutions to do this was part of the idea of the grant. So all this came in fruition. We were able to pair the first five students 
with mentors from our division of different disciplines. And when we had the first meetings, it was extremely, extremely rewarding to see how this actually happened. So thinking about the period of time that you've been working on this and you're moving through and building this incredible program, what are some of the successes or maybe even some of the challenges you might want to speak to about how you move this all forward? I think hands down the biggest challenge has been in facilitating 10 faculty members to be in the same place at the same time. I imagine. <laughs> yes, as of this September. And I say 10 now because we just completed our second year of the program. So we had at our last meeting in May, we had five sophomore students and five junior students. And this fall we'll have the complete complement that we had always envisioned where we'll also have the five seniors. So we, those two groups have risen up to the next class and then we'll have a new group of sophomores. So totaling 15 pairings of students and faculty. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Andres School and Amy Larson in our division who have really helped with administrative support and logistics, looking at all the faculty members time away, what assignments they are on in terms of whether they're on a hospital service or likely to be in the clinic. We tend to do these meetings. We've always done them in the clinic setting. We have one faculty advisor who's a PhD researcher and so comes over to the clinic space to meet with and sometimes brings his student back to his lab space to meet one-on-one. -on -one. But in general, we're meeting in the clinical space and we do this during noons, so over the lunch hour. And as we look at faculty schedules, we try to have as many people obviously in town, but also in clinic that time. I only say this because unlike other specialties, our division is stretched often to the hospital for critical care service or consult service or things like that. And so it's not a given that we're all in the building, even if we're all in town and working. So you're arranging these times with the student and a faculty member. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, meeting times outside of work. So we have had a few meeting times outside of work that occurred with the entire group. And so those were actually kind of orientation sessions where the parents were also involved. One was over Zoom when we first launched the program and we had the students call into the Zoom call with their families. And that was so interesting, even just to see a window, window into their homes and see their family kind of crowded around them on the Zoom screen and asking questions. And then we've also had a gathering outside of work hours of local park and had food delivered there and invited the students and their families kind of as a celebration of them and of the program. And most of our faculty mentors were able to come to that along with a few other division leaders. And that was an outstanding and really moving and humbling opportunity to meet these families, hear their stories, and to field some of their questions about they had a lot of far-reaching questions and a lot of much more pragmatic questions about next steps for clearing all these hurdles. Many of 
which were unfamiliar or not previously navigated by any member of their families and so or friend circle in terms of how to get into college and then a graduate school beyond that and what are the things that they should be encouraging their student to do. It sounds like you've seen uh, two different incarnations of this program, one in Chicago and one in Rochester, Minnesota, two very different communities, I would imagine. Can you share your views about how these uh, have been the same and how have they differed? They have been similar. And I can tell you that I am amazed about the curiosity of these students in both places about, I can see how they use these programs in the two locations to fulfill their needs to understand what is a health science career. I believe that we are complementary to what is being taught in school. I mean, it's very different to have a biology class rather than have a physician in front of you or a technician in health that can actually tell you what to work on this is, is, is about. And, and I saw that in Chicago as well. And they were always very curious. They were very formal. They wanted actually to put their best face with us to actually represent their best of themselves and to say, this is what I would like to do, or this is what I have a question about. And we have actually, Dr. DiMartino and, and yourself, you have been witness to their smart questions, their smart approaches, how they really want to do this. And I see that in both places. I do believe we are complementary, but this one-to-one, what we're doing here and what I saw in Chicago as well, it clicks tremendously in their mind. There is a leadership role that we start to place in the minds of them and their parents that actually creates a relationship that helps them take the next step. And that's what we think I'm seeing in both places. And Hector, I believe you've stayed in touch or tracked the progress of some of the people that you've mentored in the past. Can you share a little bit of that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I had a, a couple of wonderful students in high school over there. Again, in this, it, similar to what happened in, in Chicago, we, we really didn't have part of the selection committee of the students. We left it for the public schools decide and put their own rules. I mean, we had kind of a quick guidance, but they decided who they were. But the students actually that I had in Chicago, they um, actually went into medical school and one of them became a radiology technician as well. They stay in touch and, and they are very happy about the time that we work together. So I hope this continues here as well. I think that's what's going to happen. And that is very, very rewarding. It feels like even though it was a small contribution, that contribution has weight. So do either of you have any particular stories that you found to be very moving or connected that you want to share? I would share that student, actually, the one who was in Chicago at that time. I mean, he was a student who said to me in one of our first meetings that he was the first one to go to college from his family. He was the first one, actually, his parents they had no idea how to guide him. He was a very bright student. And he said he didn't know if he can handle a, a big college. He didn't know what it would be to be away from his family, who were very traditional in Chicago, and they actually didn't speak English. He was the only one who spoke English in his family. So lots of difficulties. And he actually mentioned to me that he would not know if he would be able to do it. And I said, absolutely, you'll be able to do it. And we'll continue. And he actually went on into the University of Virginia and that's where he found his college. And then he continued his medical school at the University of Virginia. So that's an experience that I would not forget because actually 
up right now. He's probably in practice now that I haven't heard from him lately, but he definitely was a, a, a big success story of the first one in his family of immigrants. Oh, that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that kind no. of vulnerability that only comes about when you really get to know somebody and when you're when you're sitting with them one-on-one in a quiet space and meeting them again and again, that kind of story is exactly what inspired this program overall. So thank you for sharing that. This is going to come back a little bit to the beginning of this conversation, Aaron, where you said, gee, there's really not a lot published about how to measure success. So how are you measuring success of the program? A lot of it has been through back from the students themselves and from their faculty advisor when I am concerned that they may not be so bold as to tell me what's working and not working for them. And so we did administer a survey to them before and after the first year and made some adjustments. I haven't mentioned this so far, but our students come to school campus four times a year. So it's it's really for the faculty, it's a four hour commitment. For the students, it's a bit longer because they get bussed back and forth, but it's a relatively short commitment. For each of those four hour sessions, we try to provide a conversation guide for our faculty so that they're not just sitting in a room with a student that's many years removed from their own personal experience. So they just have some ideas, some prompts of questions to talk about and some reminders about trying to look back on their own experience and the the things that they struggled with or questioned during those times. We administered a survey at the end of the year to try to gather some feedback about what worked well for them, what didn't work well, what types of sessions or topic areas they'd like to hear more about. I wish we would have been even more rigorous about the way we did it, but this is really kind of a homegrown effort to do a little bit of quality control ourselves before we kind of showcase this or publish this as as a playbook for others to follow. So Hector, I'm just reflecting, it was wonderful just to hear you tell the story of one student that you remember I'm thinking there's another metric of success in this program beyond the student's view of how engaging it is. What are you hearing or what are you noticing about colleagues who are participating in the program? Yes, actually, we don't limit the colleagues on on, on what they can do and they cannot do. We actually have just a guide. But what is more important here, uh, Dr. Morgenthaler, is actually how other divisions are actually reaching out and trying to see how they can implement something similar to what we have. So I think that's probably the biggest impact, even outside of our divisions. I don't even know how this information came out. But obviously, the, the, the first answer is, yes, our colleagues, I have I heard only positive answers. They all are amazed about the engagements, the questions, the the formality of these students. I mean, we forget about what a high school student is about and what their mind is like and and generationally how they have changed compared to when we were high school students. And they all have expressed similar thoughts about how mature they are, how they are well-guided and they really want to go um, to commit into something. But then what we are seeing from outside within Mayo and other divisions that they're asking us how to do it. Again, this was a small enterprise, and and obviously we are not yet in shape or form to make it bigger at this point, but I think that this is probably the most important feedback people are hearing about. 
I like that you started to talk about others internally to Mayo Clinic that are really interested and want to know how to get this started. What would you just say to someone who's listening today? That says, you know, this is a phenomenal idea. What could be some first steps for us to get this started in our community? I think there's very little about the program that is specific to Mayo or specific to Rochester. And intentionally so, it's a simple, lean project. One of the first steps would probably be to identify allies, both administrative and colleagues who might be interested in participating, reaching out to a local high school or school system to see if there might be an ally within their school system who could help partner and co-develop a program that is tailored to their community and their student base. Starting small, I think is critical. We didn't want to overpromise and underdeliver. And so starting with just a, a handful, maybe even two or three students a year or something sure. like that, especially if there's no funding that goes along with it, which I expect would be the case for most people who are starting a program like this. But I will tell you that our expenses have been scant. And so I, I don't think that alone should be, and, and our faculty would happily, and I think in the future probably will be asked to put the bill for those pizzas and whatever we're getting <laughs> that, that satisfy the high school appetites. And so I don't think that is necessarily a barrier, but yeah, just finding a few like-minded colleagues and ideally connecting with somebody in the school system to talk about whether a program like this could exist, what timing makes sense in our division for our workflow, a middle of the day time made the most sense in terms of having the most faculty able to converge. For other practices, that may be end of the day or beginning of the day. End of the day, we found that even if we could get our faculty together, we were worried that was gonna bump up against students' jobs or extracurriculars. And there are all these things that we don't necessarily think about when we're in our little world in the medical center about the realities of what would be easiest for the students. And so that's why that partnership has been really helpful in developing the schedule and everything. I just want to thank both of you again for sharing your experience here and, and your enthusiasm and your passion. Personally, it was exciting for me to see this program develop in our division, and I thank you both for, for your leadership in doing that. And then I was extra selfish and had the opportunity to actually participate as a mentor. And all of the things that you were saying, Hector, I have felt too. I mean, to see the inquisitiveness of these young minds, to see they're very practical questions to see their determination, their grit. It expanded my world. It expanded my experience. Selfishly, I can't think of anything that was more gratifying over the past year than participating in the program. And that's why I just really was enthusiastic about bringing this to our podcast for our listeners, because I can't imagine that they wouldn't experience the same thing. But we have come to the end of our podcast. I'm really glad you could join us. I hope the information provided was insightful and valuable and inspirational to our listeners. Again, Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization, sometimes big, sometimes personal. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations that we all serve. Till next time, goodbye. Thank you.